Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books in Psychology. I'm Eugenio Duarte, your host, as well as a practicing psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist in Miami. Today, my guests are Drs. Patricia Garovici and Christopher Christian, editors and contributing authors of the book Psychoanalysis in the Barrios, Race, Class, and the Unconscious, published in 2019 by Routledge, which they are here to discuss with me today. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my guests. Dr. Patricia Garavici is a psychoanalyst in private practice in Philadelphia and New York, an analytic supervisor, and a recipient of the 2020 Sigourney Award for her clinical and scholarly work with Latinx and gender variant communities. Her single authored books include The Puerto Rican Syndrome, winner of the Gradiva Award and the Boyer Prize, as well as Please Select Your Gender, From the Invention of Hysteria to the Democratizing of Transgenderism, and the book Transgender Psychoanalysis, A Lacanian Perspective on Sexual, Dif- on Sexual Difference. Pardon. Dr. Christopher Christian is a psychoanalyst in private practice in New Haven, Connecticut, and co-editor of the book Psychoanalytic Perspectives on Conflict with Morris Eagle and David Wolitsky. He is also co-editor with Michael J. Diamond, of the book, The Second Century of Psychoanalysis, Evolving Perspectives on Therapeutic Action. He serves as Dean of the Institute for Psychoanalytic Training and Research, also known as IPTAR, where he is also a supervising and training analyst, and he was co-executive producer of the documentary Psychoanalysis in El Barrio. Patricia and Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for for having us with you. My pleasure. First, I want to wish you congratulations on receiving a 2020 Gradiva Award for the book you're here to discuss today, Psychoanalysis in the Barrios. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar, the Gradiva Award is given by the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis. How does it feel to have your work recognized in this way? I, I, I want to say, Patricia, how does it feel? Because mm-hmm. this is the second Gradiva Award that you've received. For, for, I can say for me, it was 
quite a pleasant surprise and, and such a validation of so much hard work. But Patricia, I, I wonder what you think. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's always because uh, this time uh, uh, the work of uh, writing was not as uh, solitary as usually is. I have had the experience of uh, writing on my own. Uh, it is a, a nice way of uh, forcing yourself to take yourself away from social interactions, family life, clinical demands. Uh, but it's a, it's a lonely task. Uh, in the case uh, of this uh, book project, it was very nice because I had an excellent companion. And I want to take the opportunity of this interview to publicly thank Chris because uh, this book has happened because of Chris. He was uh, his idea. He contacted me and, uh, and uh, offered me uh, this, uh, the possibility of collaborating with this project. That it, it is a, a lot of hard work. Uh, editing a collection takes a lot of silent, almost invisible work. So it's such a wonderful reward to see it uh, come to fruition in, in, in a book that uh, I, I feel very proud of because we have had amazing contributions. We have uh, gathered a selection of wonderful authors that each, each of the articles in the collections has something very new to teach uh, and, and to discover because when, when Chris approached me, uh, initially I was a little hesitant thinking, well, I had already covered over uh, this area, I had already written in 2003, the Puerto Rican syndrome. Uh, is there anything new one could contribute to the field? And thanks to, to Chris and, and, and the contributors in our collection, I, I have to say that I learned many things and, uh, and there are many new things I, I want to continue learning and exploring. So it was really a, a wonderful and stimulating process and even an adventure, I may say. Now, some of our listeners may know you from your appearance in the 2015 documentary film, Psychoanalysis in El Barrio. Was the film an inspiration or a catalyst for the book? Yeah, yeah. The, I was, there's a little bit of a history there. There, there were a series of conferences um, that led up to the film. And um, so... The first one was Latin American Contributions to Psychoanalysis, and this was uh, at the New School for Social Research, uh, co-sponsored by the New School in IPTAR. And then there was a second conference uh, called uh, Psychoanalysis in the Barrio, in the, meaning one. Um, and on the heels of that, uh, we considered doing a, do a documentary um, that kind of followed uh, the success of Black Psychoanalysts Speak, uh, directed by Basha Winograd. Um, that, that documentary really took the field, you know, maybe by surprise, but it really captured the attention of so many people. It, at one point, it was one of the most downloaded, um, not just videos, downloaded articles in PEP. Uh, uh, CD-ROM. I, I don't know if we call it CD-ROM anymore, but Pep Web Online, and so it had it got so much attention. So, based following that success, we decided to, um, and this was a co-produced, co I should say, by Rich Reichbart, who also uh, co-produced uh, Black Cycle on the Speak. Now, the story that um, 
uh, I'm smiling because the story that we always tell is that when we, uh, after we filmed the video and we were going to have the grand opening and we were going to show it um, at the, in this theater at the New School, it's a very historic, beautiful theater with, with many eminent people uh, speaking there, including Hannah Arendt and other people. Um, it really started in in a much smaller venue because we the 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 I guess the the lesson when you've done presentations you'd rather have a packed small room than a than a large one that's halfway packed or with half the the, the audience. So we started with a small venue as relatively small, about a hundred people, and and we had had I had been on the program committee at Iptar, so we had had. Uh, international guests and had booked rooms before. And, and so you get your typical maybe 100, 160 in our field is, is a good showing for, for, uh, uh, for a conference. Within the first, I'd say, two days, we had already 100 people. And then the question became, so do we go into a venue that's three times the size uh, and, and risk being in a, in a room that's half empty? Uh, but by the end of that week, we had up to 300 people, and then we had 400 people with a wait list. I started becoming worried that there was going to be some kind of uh, safety issue in terms of the But it was such a, uh, that caught us by surprise. And I think it speaks to an interest in the topic. Um, and and the, the thing that that night, I, Patricia and I talk about this, um, there was such an electricity in the air, such a receptivity, there was uh, enthusiastic um, vocalizations. People would clap. People would nod. People would laugh because there's there's anyway. It was it's such a memorable night, and I think that after that, the, the two small conferences, then the the big success of psychoanalysis in the barrio, the video, um, it seemed natural to to. To, to do something. It's quite different, by the way. I think what Patricia was saying is, um, and this is Patricia's contribution, um, it wasn't just tapping into clinical psychologists or psychoanalysts. So it, it tapped into academics from other fields, from queer theory, from anthropology, uh, politics. And, and so it really became sort of a book of intersections between different disciplines, and I think that's what's so remarkable uh, and, about and the also book. to to, um, to continue on on this anecdote that was also an inspiration was that evening that was we felt there was a sort of fiesta party that people were talking back to the scream, and there was this enthusiasm that uh, often is not seen in psychoanalytic events that that level of energy, that there was something new in there, we felt. And, and what we did in the book was not so much to bring psychoanalysis into the barrio, but rather to bring this barrio energy, this life that we felt in that room, to bring it back to a sort of renewed psychoanalysis and living psychoanalysis, that there is something uh, new that the barrio could offer to psychoanalysis as well. It's not only a book that uh, provides a, a, a psychoanalytic frame to address uh, different issues that go uh, from clinical to cultural to anthropological, but also that the barrio has something to teach us. You know, I want to say I was there that night, 
And oh, okay. So, okay. And it was <laughs> an exciting evening for me personally. You know, I'm from Miami. I I'm I come from a Cuban family, but I moved to New York and I lived there for a decade and I trained in psychoanalysis. And the two worlds always felt like two different worlds that, that, that didn't really meet. Um, there was a world I occupied in New York on the Upper West Side in my psychoanalytic training. And then there was a world that I occupied here in Miami at the Cuban bakery down the street. And and so it was a chance to, to be in both worlds at the same time. And I do, now that you mentioned, I do remember people cheering and clapping at certain parts um, of the film. So, so clearly there's an energy um, around, a vitality around this topic. I, I want to ask about the title because you use the word barrio, but what exactly is a barrio and how are you using that term in this volume? Okay, that's that's a, a good question. Thank you. Uh, it, it's interesting when often when we, uh, the connotation of the word in Spanish barrio means simply neighborhood, may mean home. So there would be a sort of positive connotation. In the context of the U.S., often barrio represents a, a marginalized, a economically challenged social location, and often a marginalized social location with high levels of poverty and also very high levels of violence. So you may wonder why uh, insert in psychoanalysis in such a, a controversial context. And, and if we look at the etymology of the word barrio, it comes from the Arabic barri, that also means exclusion. And, and what we precisely try to challenge in the book is this idea of the, the exclusion, that uh, barrio would mean outside, that there is, is there an outside of psychoanalysis? Is there an inside of psychoanalysis? Our, our, our argument uh, in the book is that there isn't such a difference, that psychoanalysis, uh, and, and this is often a, a, a sad experience I have every time I share at a dinner party, at the lecture hall, the, my experience working with um, poor people of color in a various setting, and I share that I have conducted psychoanalytic cures in such a, a, a setting, often the knee-jerk reaction is surprised. It's as if it would be impossible to use psychoanalysis with those people. And, and, and what we want to challenge precisely is this uh, imposed border that ultimately, rather than uh, relating to issues of poverty, as if poor people would uh, need uh, an intervention that uh, would be aimed only at immediate result, that they have real problems, quote-unquote real, which, of course, they do have problems that need to be addressed with social means. But that, and I always make the same uh, joke, but I will I will indulge and say it again, is as the, the implicit pressure is as if they were saying that poor people cannot afford to have an unconscious, which is an absurd construction. So people of, of um, limited economic means can still have a reverie, can have imagination, can have an unconscious, have, have sexuality, and can benefit from psychoanalysis. And in the same way, psychoanalysis can, can benefit from exploring the, its uh, political uh, emancipatory potential. So it's a two-way road in that sense. 
Uh, so oh, the issue of barrios, another, another, yeah, there was the, the, the issue of the plural that, that uh, also Chris mentioned in passing. We pluralize barrios to precisely challenge this idea of exclusion. There is not only one barrio, but there is several barrios, and also to welcome contributions of psychoanalysts uh, from other locations. We have uh, it, uh, contributions from a historian, Mariano Plotkin, who examines uh, how psychoanalysis was received in Latin America. So we expand the barrios into other uh, similar social locations where psychoanalysis also found a home. You know, I, I'd like to read, Patricia, um, mm -hmm. from your chapter. Oh, sorry, Chris, did you want to jump in? <laughs> no, no, go ahead. I, 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 um, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll only say this. that the, First of all, I'm, I'm struck that even this to this day, we're, we're surprised by barrio and psychoanalysis in the same title. There's something almost subversive about it. Um, and I, I had the same experience back in 1994, I think, when I uh, read uh, Javier, Rafael Javier's paper, The Suitability of Insight-Oriented Psychotherapy for the Hispanic Poor. And I thought Hispanic Poor and Insight-Oriented Psychotherapy seemed like such separate things. It, it seemed so subversive to have them. Um, but 20 years later, we still have that reaction. So, so I wanted to comment on that. But the other thing I wanted to um, mention, because what Patricia says, we often think of the barrio as a place of misery. Um, but what we saw that night was that the barrio was a place of liveliness, of humor. Uh, in one of the conferences, uh, uh, one of the participants told her mom, Mommy, I'm, I'm going to see psychoanalysis in El Barrio. And she said, ah, saludos. <laughs> <laughs> she thinks of the barrio as the uh, as a place she's going. But that kind of humor we saw throughout that night, and, and I think it's a, it's a different way of having the barrio be pre present and kind of so bringing uh, bring so bring like back home. <laughs> uh -huh. That's right. That's right. There's some, yeah, anyway, so that, that, that was, that, but, it's a little but, bit but of an aside. Home, but, because but, uh, as opposed to in what has been the experience of a North American psychoanalysis, and by North American, uh, I talk about very North, I would say North of Rio Grande, because Mexico has a different uh, development in psychoanalysis in the U.S. in particular. Psychoanalysis has been associated with a practice uh, serving the world to do. So psychoanalysis was uh, assumed to be effective only to those who could afford it. Whereas in Latin America, uh, and, uh, and this is something that uh, for those in the United States comes as a surprise, has been associated with social conscience and we, we may say more uh, central left movements and has been always been seen as eminently political, whereas in the U.S., psychoanalysis has developed as a medical subspecialty and given a sort of, I may say, false idea of neutrality. And, and psychoanalysis has seen itself in the U.S. as divorced from politics and impermeable to the pressures of history, whereas in Latin America, the, the experience has been very different and uh, 
and uh, and this is uh, uh, something that Nancy Hollander also illustrates in her chapter in our collection, that uh, for uh, psychoanalysis, she examines the case of Argentina in particular. Uh, political activism and psychoanalytic practice were synonyms. That to be a psychoanalyst in, in that kind of context meant uh, assuming a political uh, committed political uh, position and, and political action, which is very different from how psychoanalysis has developed in the U.S. And in that sense, uh, the idea of psychoanalysis in the barrio may, in, 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 in the different geographical context may not be as surprising in, in the United States, I may say. But I, I want to follow up then with the two-pronged question based on, on this point, which you elaborate in the book. Um, so in, in, in certain countries in Latin America, psychoanalysis, as you say, is a political praxis. But I'm, I'm wondering, number one, what does, what does the everyday life or, or practice of a psychoanalyst in such a country look like? And number two, to the extent that that's not the way we do psychoanalysis in the United States, can we change that? And how? Uh, I would say that uh, the, the paradox is that thinking that psychoanalysis is a non-political practice implies taking a political position. <laughs> to believe that psychoanalysis is neutral is an ideological position. So I think that uh, is, is something that has to do maybe with the, the history of psychoanalysis that uh, has been... Uh, Assess in, in, by different historians that how uh, the particular development of psychoanalysis in the U.S. as trying to be more scientific has forgotten that that positioning uh, implies uh, uh, some political is, is a taking of a position even though it may look seemingly neutral. In terms of how is the everyday life of a psychoanalyst, it's, it's a very interesting uh, question, Eugenio, because I think that uh, there we have to maybe separate how uh, psychoanalysts intervene as citizens. And I think we have seen all of us, uh, if, if, if our uh, listeners are, are practitioners, we all have seen uh, an important change, I would say, since 2016, at the time Trump got elected, that uh, com the, the, the conversations on listserv have changed in their tone, uh, that during COVID, that it was very clear that psychoanalysts, we had a social role to play, and we could not be divorced from our social context. And, and I think uh, maybe being forced to practice uh, in, during the pandemic by a Zoom has maybe forced us to question how to think of analytic neutrality in ways that are more productive, both clinically and also political. And I have seen, and, and, and it's a, a development that I personally uh, applaud and welcome happily, that I saw much more political engagement uh, in, in, in all different groups in, um, that uh, psychoanalysts had uh, maybe a step out of an illusion of being outside the social link. And, and so I think that perhaps what has happened 
uh, during maybe there is more discontent in the United States, I may say. I have a limited experience because I moved to the US in only 1989, but I would say the last 30 years, I see more discontent, explicit, but more political engagement as a result. That reminds me of how was my experience in Argentina, where that's where I am originally from, where people are always unhappy. So they feel that talking about politics is, is a survival strategy. You need to complain, you need to challenge the status quo, you need to criticize the government, and then you feel more alive. And, and, and that's, there is no clear uh, division between your position as an analyst and your assuming a political position as well. So I also want to go to the question about how we bring psychoanalysis to the barrios. You make the point that in the United States, psychoanalysis is often practiced among the well-to-do, for the well-to-do, but at the risk of being a bit concrete, and given the way that mental health treatment is distributed these days, where folks who are more economically disadvantaged tend to have access to clinics where they see a high volume of patients and not so much to psychoanalytic offices. Is there a way that we can change that? My proposal will be simple. It's by uh, following this idea of bringing the barrio back into psychoanalysis is that in my private practice, I offer a sliding scale fee. Uh, the sliding scale the slides up and it slides down. So for somebody who is very well to do can, and can pay a full fee, that's great. But if somebody is willing to uh, do the work and, and we agree that we could both benefit from the process that we can work together, I offer a sliding scale fee and that's how, uh, for instance, I, I happen to speak Portuguese as well. So I, there's a big Portuguese-speaking community in uh, Philadelphia. I have many uh, patients in my practice that are maybe cleaning housekeepers, cleaning persons, construction workers, and, and, and they uh, are happy to have access to psychoanalysis. I remember talking to a cleaning lady and asking her, well, why did you want to talk to psychoanalysis? She said, well, when I live back in Brazil, I heard that was a good idea to talk one day to psychoanalysts. Now I live in the US and now that I have this cleaning job that pays me an okay salary, now I can finally do it. So I think one could bring back uh, uh, the barrio into a private office. And, and I think this is a, a, a spirit that has been forgotten and that goes back to the early days of psychoanalysis uh, uh, when uh, during the two world wars, Freud had a network of free clinics where he asked any psychoanalyst that was part of the very early emerging psychoanalytic movement to provide at least one hour of pro bono work a week. So for Freud in the early days of psychoanalysis, the psychoanalyst was meant to provide a sort of social service, we may say, or have a more varied politically and socially engaged practice. Yes, Chris, I think you were. Well, the, in your question, Eugenio, the there's an important implication that's made very automatically. Um, uh, and I think Patricia has said this in, in 
in, in, you know, in her writing and um, that in the United States, uh, the assumption is that Hispanic equals poor. And so we immediately know what you're talking about when we say, how do we work with the Hispanic given that they don't have a, so the assumption, and I think it's probably a, a correct one in a way, if it, that to, to, to speak of Hispanics in the United States is to speak of uh, uh, a poor minority. Um, and, and, and so then the question is, is it that there's a rejection of, um, you know, Puerto Rican patients in private practices because they're not amenable to psychoanalysis or is it a financial uh, choice that the analyst is making? Um, we, in 1998, Richard C. Friedman, Wilma Bucci and I conducted a research of the practices of senior psychoanalysts who were uh, members of the American Academy psychoanalysis. And we found out that the median income back then uh, of the patients in this sample was $200,000. In other words, they were treating relatively well-to-do patients. Um, and it wasn't that they were treating uh, the worried well, because another thing that that research showed was that, in fact, um, it, they, they were very severely ill patients that were being treated in private practice. But for the most part, they were treating well-to-do patients. And this is, there's a scene, by the way, in, in, in the, in the in, in the video uh, that I, I, is very poignant. And I, you may remember when Ernesto Mojica talks about a patient uh, where the patient is, is worried about asking him whether he could use the couch. And, and, and Ernesto says, well, why do you hesitate to ask? And he says, because I, 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 I think it's for, to well, for, for the well-to-do. In other words, that even the bias, even the patient understands the, the bias that exists and keep yeah. keeping them off the couch. Um, so, so, so it's a, it's a financial question, not just a clinical one. That, and I think that's 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 and, very and important. And we may say that that Ernesto is, is a beautiful, very moving passage on in the documentary. What he illustrates is the idea that there is only one resistance in analysis: the analysts' resistance, not the analysis' resistance. That if if um, if the analyst is willing to overcome uh, maybe the, the shared prejudice uh, and, and, and in a way uh, honor uh, psychoanalysis as a practice of hospitality. Uh, when I mentioned this, somebody made the joke that we are in the hospitality industry. <laughs> but uh, psychoanalysis is about hospitality. We welcome when somebody contacts you the first time, brings you up. You don't know who you're going. You, you may talk a little on the phone and have a sense of who is coming to your private practice, but then you open the door of your office and you don't know who you're going to encounter. So it is a practice that, in a way, it, it entails this leap of faith that we welcome somebody into the private space of our office. And, and I think that it's important to... To, to honor that as the essence of our practice, that we need to uh, extend that practice of hospitality to whoever may benefit from a psychoanalytic intervention. Now, in the spirit... Independently of their income. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. No, no, sorry. Yes, um, yeah, yeah, in the spirit. No, I was just going to say that in, in that spirit and in the spirit of what we discussed before regarding bringing the barrio and, and into psychoanalysis, I, I want to mention Christopher's chapter um, in the book titled The Analyst as Interpreter, Ataque de Nervios, Puerto Rican Syndrome, and Inexact Interpretation. 
for us Latinx folks, ataque de nervios is a familiar thing, but for our listeners, Chris, could you please explain what this is and why you think that we should know about it? Yes. Um, so the ataque de nervios, it's, it's now considered a culture-bound syndrome in the DSM, but, um, and you're right, any, any, any person from, especially from Puerto Rico, Cuba, the Dominican Republic, um, in, in other countries too, but well, it's so familiar with it that it, it's, it's, it's almost, there's a kind of, um, uh, well, th- that familiarity brings a smile when we talk about Ataque de Nervios because your aunt had one, and your, your, your girlfriend, whatever. So, but it, it, in essence, it's a, it's, it's, it looks like a seizure. You'll, if you see it in a clinic, but sometimes uh, it, it's often something observed in, in Latinas where uh, following some kind of uh, event, and it's usually precipitated by event. It's not like a panic attack that can happen uncued. It, it happens in, uh, there's, there's a distress response, and it's a distress response that enlists the um, intervention of the person's uh, social support network. It's always, it always happens when the person is with someone. I mean, in, I don't know if I include this in that chapter, but um, one time I asked a group of students uh, when we were talking about ataque de nervios, I said, so would you ever uh, have an ataque? You know, I would ask them, what is it? How do you treat it? Everyone knew. And then I said, would you ever have an ataque de nervios uh, when you're home alone? And a student said, why would you waste an ataque de nervios? The, the question was surprising to her as to, so it, it, it is a social sort of uh, call response that enlists social support. It's in terms of the symptoms and, um, you often hear a person uh, shaking, falling to the ground. It can look like a hyperkinetic seizure. And um, but maybe what in the chapter, I think what what I I was trying to show was kind of a couple of things. But one of them is here in the barrio, we see the conversion disorders that Freud was talking about in the, at the turn of the century. Uh, on the one hand, you know, we're talking about how. You know, uh, hysteria and conversion disorders, which marked the birth of psychoanalysis, were now deemed unavailable to psychoanalysis when presented by a Latina, you know, in a, a Freudian practice in, in the Upper West Side, let's say. And there's an irony in that. And so, um, and when you, when you look at Freud's description of, of, of conversion disorders, he and I mentioned in the chapter how he starts off by in the neuropsychosis of def, uh, defense explaining how uh, certain uh, memories that are repressed, there's a, an amount of energy tied to them that once then the energy, the, the memory is repressed, the energy tied to that man- memory needs to go somewhere. And he says, well, it goes into what we call uh, something somatic. It's transferred into something somatic. So he was explaining how certain traumas uh, can then get manifested in the body. And then later on, he elaborates, well, it's not necessarily about uh, discharging affects and maintaining some equilibrium in the, in the organism. It's that these ataques and these conversion disorders have symbolic meaning. And so he goes from uh, what we might think of uh, as an organic or um, hydraulic type of description to a more psychological one. That, and I think that's how we understand it nowadays, that it's a certain compromise formation by which, and it's usually a Latina, um, uh, expresses distress 
and disavows uh, aggression and sexuality. Uh, and so she is able to express things through the atakis that are rendered um, uh, normal and not uh, jarring, offensive, or going against the social norms of, of her community. Um, and so the, 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 just one last point, the, the, um, when I talk about Glover's idea of the inexact interpretation, Glover had this idea that there are certain interpretations that by virtue of being somewhat removed from the true source of anxiety, provide relief of the anxiety. In other words, they almost serve defensively. And what we see with things, things like panic attacks, but even not talking about energy, when you label them, you di- the diagnosis itself can become uh, an inexact interpretation to the extent that it doesn't really address the true sources of the person's um, impulses, uh, fears, uh, defenses, and compromise formations. But it, it's not a language. It, it, it removes them enough so that it, rep- it gives some uh, symptom relief. But it complicates then the treatment and the person knowing themselves better and all of that that we see in psychoanalysis. And so, so that was my, that part of the inexact interpretation that I was. And, and what then is to. Puerto Rican syndrome? And is it different from Ataca de Nervios? Well, here, the, the authority on that is certainly Patricia, because um, the, there were two books, I think, in my, uh, in my graduate school. Javier had a huge impact on me. And then I come across Patricia's book, The Puerto Rican Syndrome. Um, and I've, it's hard to read any uh, other, uh, you know, piece of work that addresses it so comprehensively as uh, Patricia. And so I'll, I'll, I'll defer to her to describe the Puerto Thank Rican. Thank you, Chris, for such kind introduction. The well, the Puerto Rican. The same question you asked, Eugenio. I asked myself. I was working in the barrio in my clinic. And, and there I encountered this strange label, Puerto Rican syndrome. I have never heard in all my studies any other diagnosis associated with the nationality. You don't have uh, French melancholy or American anxiety or Argentinian narcissism, even <laughs> though these true labels could describe a lot about those cultures. But there is no, in, 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 in the very wide psychiatric nomenclature, there is no nationality attached to a psychiatric diagnosis, but then you have a Puerto Rican syndrome, and we know that Puerto Rico is not an independent nation. It's a, it's a complicated, has a complicated status, Puerto Rico, uh, and uh, there it is, a diagnosis that already is uh, quite problematic, not only from a political perspective, but also from a clinical perspective, because looking at it closely, it uh, describes, as uh, uh, Chris said it very well, something that could look initially like a very severe case of epilepsy or a sort of a, a seizure or an explosion of anger, often destroying objects, but followed by amnesia. Uh, attacks of rage, uh, but that look at it closely does not have any, uh, like it would be with a true situation of epilepsy. There is no anatomical correlate. It's uh, There is no um, organic cause, but a psychogenic cause. It's caused by uh, extreme emotions. In the local idiom, the ataque de nervios is a, an expected reaction that Interestingly enough, is not being is not considered pathological 
in uh, one one I remember exploring the the literature it says that if you have an attack of the nervios on in New York you end up in the emergency room and you end up with a terrible diagnosis of severe psychosis. If it happens in San Juan, Puerto Rico, somebody brings a little air, gives you a little alcoholado or the agua de Florida, a little perfume, uh, wipes the sweat from your forehead and it's done. <laughs> so we see how the, the eye of the examiner, that in a way the Puerto Rican syndrome uh, also when it appears in the standardized manual of diagnosis, such as the DSM of the American Psychiatric Association, you could see that cultural prejudice transforms otherness into a pathology because in the local context is considered an expected reaction to severe stress or, or a loss of a loved one, severe trauma, and in the in, in the cultural context in which uh, this may, cultural form of expression is not sanctioned as normal, it be, is seen as a severe pathology. The other interesting thing that I, I encountered uh, examining the Puerto Rican syndrome is that historically it started being, the label was invented in the 50s during the Korean War, which is something I, I take again in, in my contribution to, to the collection, uh, that uh, also expresses uh, the very complex position of a Puerto Rican citizen who is uh, at the same time an American citizen who is uh, fighting during the Korean War with the U.S. flag and also carrying the Puerto Rican flag and explains the, the complicated position uh, in a sort of post-colonial situation for uh, the Puerto Rican population that is not uh, completely away from a, a, a situation of colonial subjection. What I want to say maybe to, to put it, uh, maybe make it... Short is a very complex issue, but that at times a clinical manifestation, somebody showing up at a clinic with a, a reporting that they had an attack the night before, or something that will be labeled as a Puerto Rican syndrome, that what you see that uh, at times a, a clinical symptom could function as an allegory of a social situation, that the clinical and the social cannot be told apart. That, uh, in a way, one individual manifestation could also talk for uh, a suffering shared by a community. And, and that's something that for which uh, psychoanalysis is uniquely prepared to respond to, to account for those two levels uh, taking place at one, that one could not look at these symptoms without taking into account the social context, the history of the community, the language that community uses. That, for instance, in my practice in the barrio, uh, was very interesting because I had to learn a new language. Uh, neither my first, my mother tongue, Spanish, was enough. Not the English I had learned at school. I needed to be taught by my patients Spanglish which is this in-between language. And I think that's a nice metaphor of how the suffering is in this in-between situation, being between two cultures, being between two languages, and also in, in, in for a population challenged by barriers of class, language, gender, race as well. Uh, so, and, and, and 
unlike what we may think uh, if we imagine that psychoanalysis is a sort of in its most classical presentation, I believe that psychoanalysis is uniquely equipped to address all these levels at once. Now, the, if if the well, if the condition ataca de nervios reflects a sociopolitical mm -hmm. reality, then does that mean? that giving it a DSM diagnosis is a political act or has political, sociopolitical implications? Yeah, it's a form, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I think unhappily the DSM uh, suffers from, I may say, and uh, it's a little blunt, but that's what I believe is, it's uh, slightly racist. Uh, certain diagnosis, if you look, for instance, that there is this cluster separated called culturally bound syndromes, it happens to belong to cultures that are other to mainstream American culture, uh, white Anglo-Saxon. So it is uh, surprising that... Uh, we assume that the only culture that produces uh, uh, manifestations deemed pathological are cultures which are not our own from the perspective. I think that in a way itself, the, the DSM is a cultural product, is a product of the American Psychiatric Association, and for instance, uh, assumes that a depression is not as pathological as other forms of manifestations that are clustered in this marginal section in the diagnosis, which I think has been the case. It has been in, the, in recent years, and maybe Chris has a, more to add on that, that in our practice, we are not using reliance so much on the DSM. We are using more the IC9. We are, we are becoming aware that this tool which is a useful diagnostic tool, however, happens to suffer from a lot of bias that could, uh, in a way, prevent us from having a more objective clinical view. Chris, would you like to weigh in? Yeah, I, just to reiterate what a part of what Patricia... Yeah, just, can you hear me okay? Just to reiterate what Patricia is saying, that, that, um, we know that in, in certain uh, in hospitals and... Um, Hispanic patients and patients of color in general are more likely to receive a more severe uh, diagnosis, are more likely to be treated with medication instead of talk therapy, and are more likely to receive a symptom-focused therapy if the, if the hospital or the internship program have, happens to have a psychodynamic uh, track as well. They'll be treated with uh, more symptom-focused uh, therapies. And so there, there's there's a segregation that happens even as part of our training. You know, we're almost out of time. Um, I, I wanted to, first of all, thank you for a lively and, and timely discussion. I want to remind our readers um, that I'm talking to Drs. Patricia Garavici and Christopher Christian about their book, Psychoanalysis in the Barrios, Race, Class, and the Unconscious. Before we go, I wanted to give you a chance to let us all know what you're up to these days? Well, I, I am happy to say, so I, I, my practice has moved to New Haven. Um, and so that's new. And I'm working with interns from uh, the Yale Internship Program. Um, and I'm also, I'm doing research. Uh, and this has been long ongoing, but research on linguistic measures based on um, one of which is multiple code theory. 
that we apply to uh, psychotherapy sessions to understand not so much the outcome of, of, of different therapies because we know therapy uh, tends to work, but really addressing the more complicated question of how, how does therapy work? And, and um, so, so that's, that's, that's been my focus for the, Fantastic. for the past year. What about you, Patricia? Well, having had this uh, wonderful experience of uh, teamwork with Chris, I, I engage in yet another collection so, <laughs> that I, I recently completed with Mania Steincolor, also working on this uh, uh, field of uh, psychoanalysis uh, and uh, barriers, not so much focusing on, on barriers of language and class uh, and race, but the barriers of gender. And so in this intersectional approach, I just completed with the Magnestian Kohler a collection on psychoanalysis, gender and sexualities from feminism to trans. That's the, the, the working title so far. We know books evolve, so that may not be the final title, but this is so far our working title. And again, working with the, the ideal soccer team. With This is the, for those who like soccer, when, when you edit a collection, you get to uh, select your dream team of players and, <laughs> and, and, and enjoy the fantastic game. So uh, I think that thanks to Chris, uh, uh, I discovered the, that for me, the wonderful thing of, of uh, this type of work is that takes away the pain of writing. So writing becomes a, a more the side of the pleasure and the adventure and the possibility of, uh, of uh, discovering things anew thanks to, to the illumination of contributors. So that's what, what, what we are going to, to be finalizing this summer. Well, congratulations to both of you, first of all, on the book, which has been so well received, and also on your, on your individual endeavors. I, I hope to hear about them uh, once they're out. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Eugenio, for inviting us. Great pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Eugenio. Thank you.